Welcome to the Goober P Podcast. My name's Jesse. And I'm Kate. And today is episode three of the Goober P Podcast. Um, so picking up the structure that we have been following along, today we're going to be talking about two chapters of James McPherson's classic Civil War book, Battle Cry of Freedom. We're going to be covering chapter five, titled The Crime Against Kansas, and chapter six, which is titled Mud Sills and Greasy Mechanics for A. Lincoln. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, Jesse, to start us off, thoughts, takes? Well, what the, do you think? The chapter, I enjoyed both both chapters. Um, I liked the second one of, of today's podcast, Mud Sills and Greasy Mechanics for A. Lincoln. Because it has I'll, a good title. <laughs> that, and it was a little easier for me to follow. Um, yeah. This one has a lot of action happening in the in the area which is now known as Kansas um and <clears throat> to be honest with you I got a little lost as I read this chapter mm-hmm. um but where do you want to start uh we we have to cover a lot of things like you know John Brown new political parties mm-hmm. we have um politicians that didn't used to be politicians yeah uh, so who, where do we start I think we should start off with just a quick refresher. So at the end of chapter four, at the end of episode two of this podcast, we talked about Kansas and Nebraska Act, um, that really controversial bill that got through Congress in the mid-1850s that basically said Kansas, um, it repealed the Essentially, it repealed the Missouri Compromise. So it said Kansas and Nebraska can enter the Union using popular sovereignty, which means that the citizens of those territories would vote on whether or not they wanted to have slavery or not have slavery as they entered the Union with their state constitutions and structures. So we we go from that Kansas-Nebraska Act straight into this, like, witch's cauldron, this boiling pot of Kansas. And the chapter of the title is The Crime Against Kansas. And this chapter has so much going on in Kansas. So I do think we should start um, by just briefly going over some of the conflicts and some of what was going on there. Because I honestly, I don't think a lot of people think about Kansas as like this big battleground in the lead up to the Civil War. At least not a lot of modern Americans. I don't know. What do you think, Jesse? Yeah, I de- and even I definitely didn't. Um, and I, I've read this book before, so this is the second time I've read I've read it. Um, and McPherson's kind of reminding me, oh yeah, like mm-hmm. um, Kansas was huge. Um, yeah, and then it's like Kansas played a big role in the lead up, and then um, you know some stuff during the war, but like post-Civil War and, like, modern day, I feel like a lot of people just don't think about Kansas. <laughs> um, uh, it was, yeah, so, so, but it has a big role to play. So, um, in Kansas, right, there's this struggle going on after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act um, between folks who are pro-slavery and folks who are anti-slavery on how this how this territory is going to enter the union as a state will it be slave state will it be free state and there's these two camps that kind of emerge there's um the camp that's out of topeka kansas which is more um anti-slavery so it's more northern and they're pushing for kansas to enter the union without slavery so as a free state 
And then the other camp that's kind of in contrast to that is the Lecompton. Um, and these are two cities in Kansas. I'm just calling them camps. And Lecompton is predominantly Southern, so predominantly pro-slavery. Um, and these two areas get really entrenched. And it's important to know that the majority of the citizens of Kansas are they do lean anti-slavery. But when some of these votes are happening, what occurs is Southerners flood across the border and they're committing voting fraud and they're, you know, bullying. Bullying is a kind word for what they were doing. You're talking about border ruffians? Yeah. yeah. From Missouri? Nickname watch. Yeah, yeah. really. <laughs> um. But yeah, so the majority of the people who are actually living their lives and their day-to-day existence in Kansas were anti-slavery. But whenever one of these votes would come around about how Kansas was going to enter the Union, these border ruffians, thanks, Jesse, would kind of flood across and stuff ballot boxes for, you know, the pro-slavery side and really um, skew things that way. And so because of this, there was this seesaw this back and forth, back and forth. The state would vote for one thing and then they'd be like, no, 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 that's not right. And then the other side would say, okay, let's hold a new vote. Um, So it's, I don't know, maybe that was part of why it was kind of confusing for you. But just to, well, just to give, well, I think it was just confusing because there was just so many different events and um, political processes to to keep track of when it just keeps going do 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 you know like back and forth back and forth yeah i want to point out for listeners just how crazy this was um at this time we had a uh a senator atchinson is that how you say his last name uh-huh. he's leading uh groups of these border ruffians mm-hmm. encouraging them you know bring your revolvers bring mm-hmm. your bowie knives mm-hmm. um and, and and he was a member of the senate yeah um, this crazy. is again, this is again where I'm like, they're, they're not just there to affect the voting. They're there to intimidate the crap out of people. Oh, they're yeah. there to scare people off. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we made that clear. Well, enough. I think I said bullying, which is a soft term. It was, it was like, <laughs> it was very, uh, tar- it was terrorism. I would say a form yeah. of terrorism. Yeah. You could argue. Cause we're going to talk yeah. about terrorism coming from both sides. Yeah. Domestic terrorism. Um, domestic for sure. terrorism, yeah. For sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, so essentially the main theme behind this chapter is Kansas is just like a hot bucket of craziness. There's, you know, there's this back and forth going on. There's this these warring factions between the, the pro-slavery and the anti-slavery folks. And essentially they're just trying to get a bill to the federal government for admission as a state. And one of the things I noticed, tried to like pick through some of the back and forth, some of these action things that are going on in this chapter. And one of the interesting things is I think that what was going on in Kansas with the chaos and the, um, you know, unsteadiness and all of that, we kind of actually see that mirrored at the federal government level as well as they're dealing with Kansas. Um, so Kansas sends a bill to enter the union as a state, as a free state. They also send one to enter as a slave state. So Congress, U.S. Congress is faced with these two dueling bills. And 
you know, Congress just doesn't know what to do with it, right? Because these divisions that we're seeing in Kansas are being mirrored in the federal government in Washington, D.C. Um, Democrats controlled one chamber of Congress and then Republicans controlled the other. So, you know, there's this, again, like Kansas is almost this political football that's being punted around between the parties, between the houses of Congress. And Kansas really comes up. Um, how can how can Kansas and this topic be used during the presidential election that that would be coming up shortly? Um, does that do you see that mirroring going on, Jesse? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just kind of refreshing my memory as you were talking. Um, I was reading more about Atchison. Uh, let's see. Pretty crazy quotes here. Uh, blood for blood, blazoned the Atchison squatter sovereign. Let us purge ourselves of all abolition emissaries and give distinct notice that all who do not leave immediately for the East will leave for eternity. <clears throat> oh, um, some threatening language. And we're setting up... so. Pretty soon we're going to be talking about um, John Brown. Um, well, just but, the start of John Brown. But Kansas at this time, right. Kansas at this time is being called Bleeding Kansas. Yep. Um, literally, it's, 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 a, it's a stage where not, not a civil war is being fought, but essentially it's... I almost feel like this is the beginning of the Civil War when you read mm. it about it again. See, don't that's, you? that's a hot take. I think. I, I mean, not officially, but it just right. feels like it's people are already dying over this. I, so I feel like Civil War historians have this constant debate over like, what was the beginning of this inevitable conflict, right? Mm -hmm. The Civil War. Some people say it's John Brown's raid in 1859 on Harper's Ferry. Harper's Ferry. Some people say Kansas. Some people say it's Lincoln's election. Some people say, so there's, um, you know, all kinds of different camps that historians fall into. But it sounds like Jesse is in the Kansas camp, which is understandable. I'm not really sure where my, where my opinions lie. I think, yeah. Um, I, will, I will say that reading this chapter, it gives you kind of a good review of um, how our government works. Hmm. In a way, I mean, it talks a lot about, um, and, and and the next chapter even goes into this a little deeper, but the the tactics by different members of Congress and the balance of power with the with the president. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of shenanigans going on to try to make <laughs> sure that Kansas was one for one side or the other. Mm -hmm. um, and when the political process isn't working people uh then begin to resort to violence resor resort to violence yeah, yeah. and uh, that's i think that's where you see like kansas playing out in dc on this larger national like kind of federal government level because what's happening in kansas is there's a ton of bloodshed going both ways so let's just be clear like it wasn't just these pro-slavery southern forces who were coming in talking about violence and bloodshed there were also northerners who were um anti-slavery folks who were coming in and doing raids on on towns and you know there's bloodshed going both ways um but in the in DC northerners aka republicans generally 
use the example of Kansas as like yet another example of what they call the slave power attacking northern rights. And I think this idea of like, you know, this I'm doing air quotes, the slave power We're going to see it coming up a lot here, but then also in the next chapter as and and especially as we get closer to um, the outbreak of the Civil War as something that's really galvanizing and unifying for Northerners and Northern Republicans is this idea of like there is this existential threat to Northern independence and liberty and it's the slave power. So this is one of those times where the Republican Party is kind of pulling on this idea of like, look, the slave power, like they're so dangerous, they're threatening what's going on in Kansas. And, you know, could it could it change the balance across the across the country? And it's that backdrop that we get to Charles Sumner. Um, Jesse, do you want to tee us up, tee us up on Charles Sumner? Um, I don't. I was hoping that you (laughs) I was hoping that you would. I was actually just reading um, I need to I need to stop looking down at uh, McPherson, but I I just want to kind of give a shout out to McPherson. Um, he does such a methodical job of of research and just taking you step by step through this process. But then he'll kind of provide a description of somebody that's really um, compelling. Like I was just reading how he was describing John Brown. Oh, well, um, let's not, not quite... let's not get there yet. Let's talk. Let's about... talk about Sumner and then we'll get to John okay. Brown. So what what do the listeners need to know about Sumner? Well, they need to know that Charles Sumner was a northern politician and he was livid about this Kansas issue. And so he goes on to the floor of Congress and he gives this long speech and he really lays into the South um, and in the context of what's going on in Kansas. So that's the backdrop. Charles Sumner goes in and just like, you know, verbally destroys a lot of, you know, this, the Southern mentality in this fight. And he just like really tears them, tears them apart. Um, he gives this long, long speech on the floor. And then shortly after, there's a consequence for Charles Sumner. And again, like this is where when we look at the lead up to the American Civil War in the 1850s and 60s, like this is again where sometimes today in our modern day world, in our rhetoric, you hear people being like, we've never been this divided. Things have never been this bad, which like I don't want to minimize the fact that there is division and there are challenges today. But also, like, people aren't getting physically assaulted on the floor. Or politicians aren't getting physically assaulted by other politicians in Congress today. Um, And so, like, there is this kind of next level. And that's part of why I think this time period is interesting to talk about in our modern day time period, too. Preston Brooks, who's a Southerner, um, he takes particular offense with Charles Sumner's speech and he decides to take action into his own hands. So he approaches Charles Sumner after the speech, and he canes him. He hits him with a cane on the floor of Congress over 30 times, um, to the point where Sumner like had lifelong injuries and repercussions from this incident, and you know like had to leave Congress for a good amount of time and just like never regained his full sense of how he was prior. 
So really, really traumatic, really violent, and all motivated by this backdrop of Kansas. It's like a very powerful issue that was moving people to act in ways that are kind of extreme. One of the things that McPherson kind of leans into when he's talking about the caning of Charles Sumner is this idea of like, you have bleeding Kansas and then you have bleeding Sumner, right? So these two things are coexisting together, kind of caused by by the other. In the North, both bleeding Kansas and this attack on Charles Sumner was, again, very unifying. People were outraged. Like, how could this happen? You know, a man, a, a congressperson is beaten nearly to death in Congress by another representative and nothing is happening? Like, how is this acceptable? So people in the North were really, really outraged. And again, you see examples of, like, this idea of the slave power, right? This, like, um, kind of threat that Northern Republicans pull out to unify their their voters. But in the South, Southern people turned Preston Brooks, the guy who did the caning, they kind of put him up on a pedestal. Right. They kind of made him into a hero, which I just kept thinking, like, wow, how would that, the consequences would be so different today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then in, I don't know, do you want to, is this a, the right time to talk about John Brown? Well, I want to just really touch on one thing that McPherson points out in the, like, in the context of the Southern response to Preston Brooks and Charles Sumner. And it has to do with this idea of kind of honor again. So I haven't forgotten that I'm tracking this kind of nebulous idea of Southern honor throughout. And so I have a couple examples pulled out. Let's see, newspapers in Brooks's own state, which is South Carolina, um, expressed pride that he had, quote, stood forth so nobly in defense of the honor of South Carolinians. Which is fascinating to me. Like, this idea of standing forth nobly for the honor of your state. That concept is really interesting. But also how he did that by, you know, caning this man um, is just kind of wild. And I think really shows some of the extremeness of the time. Which, of course, then we get to another very extreme character in this story. So, Jesse, I know you've been chomping at the bit. Do you want to yeah. give us a little intro on um, John Brown? Well, I'd like to read McPherson's description of John Brown. So, John Brown, if you, I'm sure you've heard that name in uh, folk songs. You've heard it in your history classes. But sometimes... His name sounds almost kind of fr- like friendly, like, you know, the old, <laughs> old John Brown, you know. Um, but he was a religious zealot who was uh, fiercely anti-slavery. Um, and I can respect that for sure. Um, but he takes his convictions to an extreme. And I just want to read McPherson's description of him because I think it's a really cool description. He also, uh, McPherson kind of utilizes some ancient history, Hammurabi's code, eye for an eye. And I thought that was cool. Um, But John Brown looked much like a biblical warrior who slew his enemies with the jawbone of an ass. 
Though Brown favored more up-to-date weapons like rifles and, on one infamous occasion, broadswords. Dun, dun, um, dun. <laughs> if you look at photos of John Brown, he's got like this giant beard and he's kind of gaunt in the face. But his eyes are like, um, I don't know, how would you describe the appearance of John Brown? Because I feel like it does a lot to kind of add to the mythology around him or something. I think that John Brown's eyes are his most haunting feature. Piercing kind of, yeah. They're piercing. There's there's something behind those eyes. And mm-hmm. there's a part of me that wonders, like, if we didn't know that was a picture of John Brown, would we project these same things? This, like, kind of, like, crazed sense in his eyes onto that picture? Or is it just because... <clears throat> we know John Brown or we know what he did. Yeah. And so when we see a picture, we interpret the gleam in his eye as this like, you know. What's interesting to me is that there were pro-Southern, um, pro-slavery sympathizers who also carried out pretty horrible violence. Yeah. But they're not talked about in the same way as John Brown. And that's always been interesting to me. It's well, like both sides were killing for their convictions yeah. But John Brown gets talked about like he's like the most evil person to walk the earth. I think I think there's a reason for that. And I think that's because of what John Brown did at Harper's Ferry. Mm-hmm. I think like if John Brown, which we'll talk more about when we get there. Um, but I think if John Brown hadn't done the raid on Harper's Ferry afterwards, there wouldn't be as much emphasis on what he did in Kansas. at this time it's because he has that later example with notoriety Mm -hmm. that i think is why we hear so much about him in kansas otherwise i think he'd just be another example of a hooligan and a ruffian who's spilling blood yeah over this issue of kansas so we i guess we didn't really mention what he did to to listeners who might not know some of John Brown's um, infamous actions. He and his followers essentially began to attack pro-slavery sympathizers in Kansas. Yeah. I think it was like a little bit more targeted than that. Like he was definitely in Kansas with some of his family and folks who followed him. But it was actually specifically in reaction to the news of an event called the Sacking of Lawrence, which is where pro-Southern pro-slavery folks kind of came up across the border into Kansas and destroyed this town of Lawrence, Kansas, which was known as a pro or as an anti-slavery town. So John Brown hears about the sacking of Lawrence. And on top of that, he hears about the caning of Charles Sumner. Right. So he hears these two bits of news and it just... He goes insane. It sets him off. He gets, yeah, he, yeah. Gets, he gets heated as the kids would say. Yeah. So of course, like all, like... Charles Sumner, all of that's happening back in Washington, D.C. And if we kind of zoom back to Kansas, where John Brown is, then, you know, you kind of have this idea of like what I what I thought about is like John Brown is taking this idea of fighting fire with fire Mm -hmm. really literally. Yep. Right. Like he's like, all right. he, He said that exact those exact words. Did he? We must fight fire with fire. Oh, yes. We must strike terror in the hearts of the pro-slavery people. I was just thinking about it in the context of the talking heads. But in and, that background, then, Jesse, what does John Brown then do? So, like, let's get to that part. Are we talking about the Potawatomi? Yeah. That's a that's a really cool name. That has to be a native name, right? It Potawatomi. is. There's a native nation, yeah. I believe, the Potawatomi. So he carries out what what then becomes known as the Potawatomi Massacre. 
And it's always interesting to me when the word massacre is used. Yeah. And who gets to label it a massacre? Yep. Um, but, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I have many thoughts, but let's let's talk about John Brown and then we can talk about the, that. The, Pot the Potawatomi, I'll let Kate kind of describe it, but it scares the crap out of uh, the Southern population. <laughs> it freaks them out bad, you know, because this is kind of their worst nightmare is somebody being like, not worst nightmare. Their worst nightmare would be slave revolts. Yeah. Second would be um, very religious white people fighting on the behalf of, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying yeah. it like it is. No, no, no. It's just, <laughs> it's just funny. Okay. Um. All right. So essentially what happens is this, again, this is spring of 1856, back in Kansas where John Brown calls home at the time. Um, these these big things have just been going on back east in other parts of Canvas. And John Brown's ticked off. He kind of lost it. And he hatched this plan for retaliation. Um, he was going to retaliate on some of the pro-slavery, pro-Southern folks that were near where he um, where he was, um, which is, of course, is called Pottawatomie Creek in Kansas. And he abducted five. Yeah. Yeah, so in the, in the night from yeah, their the, cabins. The night of May 24th into May 25th of 1856, um, John Brown and, you know, some of his sons and a couple other followers took, abducted five pro-slavery men. These are men who didn't have anything to do with the, the caning of Charles Sumner. And as far as John Brown was aware, as far as history is aware, these men didn't have anything to do with the sacking of Lawrence either. But again, John Brown is so fired up. He's so angry that he takes these five men from their homes at night and he and his followers murder those five men with broadswords um, right out there in the night as this act of retaliation. In some cases, in front of those men's families, like it's a really, really horrific thing that that happened that night um, in the Pottawatomie uh, massacre. And it's an example of this escalation and fighting in Kansas. The bloodshed is continuing and continuing, and it only seems to be getting worse and, and escalating. And um, federal officials are not able to arrest John Brown and his followers at that time. Right. Um, which it seems to have added some paranoia to the southern yeah. population. Like, right. how can these killings go unpunished right um mcpherson doesn't really write that necessarily but he does talk about how the um the those killings were unpunished right i feel like that's pretty significant <clears throat> if you're living at that time yeah and you know these seemingly innocent men even though obviously their beliefs are very questionable mm -hmm. um you know they they didn't deserve to get to get i mean i don't know Right. You know, it's not it's not what we think of as fair justice for them. <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. fair for them to be murdered the way they were. Right. And it's also like questionable, like, does John Brown have the right, right. to do yeah. this, to take this other person's life because he has different beliefs? In his mind, it was a righteous act. Right. And it was like he was tired of things dragging on. Yeah. He was going to take action into his own absolutely <clears throat> and the thing with john brown and we'll talk about this more as we get to john brown later but he was like so fueled by his faith by like his belief that god that he was acting on behalf of god so he has this like it's 
religious fervor. It's very much like what Americans, or what, well, not not just Americans, but now what the world is knows terrorism to be. Yeah. Um, these horrific acts are justified because they are approved by God. Right. They're approved by that divine, divine or, power. Yeah. Um, so no matter what kind of physical violence you carry out, um, you're doing the yeah. Lord's will, which is a really, that's creepy that there's people like that in the, <laughs> it freaks me out. Like, I think, how could you believe that? You well, know what I mean? And like, just to underscore, like it, for folks listening, maybe who aren't familiar with the civil war or this time period or this era, go ahead and Google what a broadsword looks like. Because I think to grasp how brutal this attack at Potawatomi was, seeing, like, the instrument but, of violence is... But see, now we're doing the... We're, we're guilty now of sort of... Not... We're sort of playing up John Brown's character now when there are just... There are other people on the true. other side. That's true. They're just not as well known, but there were people yep. on the other side killing... Yes. And, or abolitionists... Absolutely. And so I just, I, I've always been struck as to what, what is it about John Brown that, um, that yeah. people are so kind of like sickly fascinated with? Well, we're just, it's like, it's like what's always bothered me about how native history is written about, mm. you know, they'll, they'll pick a, they'll pick a tribe or a nation of people and describe them as if they were the most heinous, violent people to ever walk the face of the earth. Right. And it's just a racist depiction. Right. And so sometimes I feel like John Brown, I mean, I know it's not the same, but we talk about John Brown as if he's like the only person to carry out violence. Yes. Um, and he's not. He's, and he's definitely not. not. On either side, he's not. But there is this fascination with him. And I think the fascination with him comes because of his later actions. Okay, yeah, which, which we're not going to get into today. We won't get into today, but, you know, teaser for yeah. all you <laughs> listeners. Keep tuning in. <laughs> okay, so we should probably move along. Yeah, um, okay, so John Brown, Potawatomi, escalation, more bloodshed in Kansas. And this conflict in Kansas, it sets the context, almost sets the stage for the presidential election that comes up in 1856. Ding, ding, ding. Which, um... um so we have a new, you know, the Republican Party. Yep, is promoting candidates like Fremont. Yeah, John um, C. And John John C. Fremont came out west and was was known for his explorations. Yeah. Um, you know, traveling parts of the Oregon Trail, going up the up and down the Columbia River, blah blah blah. And this is where I do think it's cool. Like I like seeing the connections between what's happening in the East. And, like, how does it connect out here in the West? Because, of course, that is where we call home. We're, we're Westerners. Mm -hmm. um, so John C. Fremont was one that I had, like, underlined his name. And I was like, hey, hey, that's a name I know. Yeah. And the Republican Party at this time, they did a pretty smart thing, um, even though he didn't get elected. Um, but they they realized that because he didn't have a political past, there was nothing to attack. Yeah. And they could also promote this sort of romantic hero that traveled into the West right. and did all that, this stuff that we're like sick of <laughs> talking about. Rode into the sunsets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, braved the, you yeah. know, all that stuff. So. Yeah. And then so Buchanan, um, James Buchanan. Yeah. Who uh, I think we should start Nickname Watch right now. Nickname Watch. Nickname Watch. So James Buchanan is elected. 
What's James? Well, well, but before we get to him being elected, mm-hmm. so first, what's his nickname, and then let's talk about what these like what was okay. the struggle in that election. So Jesse, what was James Buchanan's epic and kind of a like kind of like a diss of a nickname? It is definitely a diss. <laughs> yeah. Because at this point he had held so many public offices or so many offices, he was known as old public functionary. <laughs> so it's like not the nickname the, you want. He was the boring bureaucratic guy. And I like I I know that McPherson mentions this when he's talking about how the Democratic Party, like how they nominated and came upon Buchanan was because Buchanan was just like safe and kind safe. of boring. And he but also if you are if you have that much experience, you know how to be a pain in the butt when. Yeah. So, I mean, the South kind of the the Democrats picked yeah. a good candidate because, um, well, not a good candidate. An effective one for them yeah. because he was old public functionary. Yeah. He knew how to get things done. He knew when to be stubborn. And he was kind of like a clinger honor, you know? Yes. He had been in these public offices for so long. Like, he just knew how to hang on. Yes. Clearly. Yeah. But, so, Democratic nominee is Buchanan, a.k.a. old public functionary. Um, He's the safe option for the Democrats. He's kind of this, you know... um bland kind of boring old functionary um the republican platform there was a real big focus so they unite behind john c fremont who's got a cool not a cool western history but interesting ties for us out here in the west and the republican platform is focusing on uniting these kind of satellite parts these like um let's call them like these you know kind of orphan parts of of other parties, these groups that maybe didn't have a home in the Republican Party or in the Democratic Party. So they're trying to pull in all those satellite groups and unite and like really solidify this Republican Party. And that is one of the big consequences that comes out of this election is the Republican Party emerges right. as solidified, strong, strengthened as a major party in the United States. And there was essentially two campaigns go or two contests happening. It was mm-hmm. Buchanan versus Fillmore in the yeah. South and Buchanan versus Fremont in the North. Yep. Um, and Buchanan wins it all. Yeah. So Buchanan wins the election and Buchanan as, you know, old public functionary, he is indebted to the South because he wins this election so heavily with support from from Southern states and from Southerners. You know, again, in the background, the context playing out, literally playing out behind all of this is still bloodshed in Kansas. Like, Kansas is still bleeding as this is happening. Okay, so Buchanan is elected... So how does that lead back into this chapter about Kansas? Yeah, so obviously the whole chapter is all about Kansas and what's going on in Kansas and you know what we start to see and what I think the point McPherson is trying McPherson is trying to make is that Kansas is this dividing issue. It's obviously there's a lot of bloodshed, but actually the di- disagreements within the Democratic Party start to emerge over this issue of Kansas, specifically between Stephen Douglas, the little giant, that's his nickname, and the newly elected president, James Buchanan. The, the, wait, what is it? 
old public functionary. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so as fighting and bloodshed continues in Kansas, we're seeing this mirrored on the federal level and we're seeing divisions and fissures really start to emerge and starting to widen in that Democratic Party. And I talked about the Jayhawker, the Jayhawks oh, yeah. um, in the last podcast, I think. You did. You mentioned uh, it. And college, we said, we'll talk more later. <laughs> college basketball nicknames and, and so so on and so forth. So is that the University of Kansas? Kansas yeah. State. Which no, no, Kansas no, 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 school no. Kansas, is the Jayhawk? Kansas. University of Kansas. Okay. Or Kansas University. I'm not sure how. It... Are their colors purple? No, no. Kansas State is purple and okay. white. Thank you. <laughs> And um, Kansas is known for their bat, particularly their men's basketball team. Uh-huh. They've had some awesome teams, um, and they're definitely like a basketball school. Hmm. But the na- so Jayhawks, so you have the border ruffians, which are the pro-slavery. Yeah. The Jayhawkers at that time were the the ones fighting the border ruffians. They were uh-huh. the anti-slavery. Um, nice. abolitionists. So that's that's why Jayhawks is kind of a cool name in a way. It is kind of a cool name. Um. It's a, I love it when the mascots, whether it's like a professional sports team or a college team, has an interesting historical mascot. Now, whether I agree with it or not is, you know. So um, you're, you're tracking um, the... Southern Honor. Southern Honor. I'm tracking um, college basketball names. <laughs> <laughs> or, or even like, you know, we talked about the 49ers. Yeah, we did. Um, but we end this chapter, The Crime Against Kansas, mm-hmm. essentially... As far as politics goes, the Democrats kind of win out in Kansas, right? Yeah. However, not without cost. Oh, yeah. Because, um, you know, the Democrats are fissuring. There, There's tension and there's strife within the party, and that's going to come back up it, again and again. Meanwhile, John Brown is, is uh, moving towards Missouri. Yeah. Where he killed, he killed a slaveholder and liberated 11 slaves mm-hmm. and um, a lot of horses and took them to Canada. Yeah. Um, but essentially, like, so go where, John Brown. where we end at the end of this chapter all about Kansas is still with the same bloodshed mm-hmm. and with the same uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And Kansas actually will not enter the Union until January of 1861. So that's after Lincoln is, you know, established as president. And when Kansas is finally admitted to the Union as a state, it's as a free state. So, you know, we kind of end the chapter with all this bloodshed and not a whole lot has changed in Kansas. But a lot has changed on the national scene because of Kansas. So that will bring us to chapter six. Yeah. Uh, Can I read the last paragraph of or the last couple sentences of this chapter really quick? Sure, go for it. With enemies like the Democrats, Republicans scarcely needed friends. As if Kansas were not enough, the Buchanan administration, the Supreme Court, and Southern Democrats ventured several other actions seemingly designed to assure Republican victory in the presidential election of 1860. Yeah, so that's... good. that's good writing right there. good writing. And that's kind of where we're going to segue into next with Chapter 6, which... um, it's titled Mud Sills and Greasy Mechanics for A. Lincoln. Cool. Uh, cool title. And obviously uh, the entrance in, you know, big bold letters of one of the biggest players who's going to dominate a lot of what McPherson is writing about for the remainder of this book, who is, of course, drumroll, Jesse. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Honest Lincoln. Abe. 
Honest Abe, nickname watch. <laughs> um, <laughs> or the old rail splitter is another one of his nicknames. I like w- when when McPherson chooses chapter titles, he o- he often pulls them from quotes. Yes. Is what I've kind of picked up from reading this book a second time. Definitely. Um, so this mud sills and greasy mechanics are kind of come from a couple different quotes from Southerners. Um, and we're, we can maybe get into that later on, but mm-hmm. this chapter, chapter six really starts off with the Dred Scott decision Absolutely. is the main one that, is that what you had first in your notes? Cause I just have, yes, the um, chapter opens kind of with a bang by talking about Dred Scott yeah. and the Dred Scott case that goes to the Supreme court. My, my first note is Dred Scott's daughter born in free territory yeah. due to Missouri compromise. Yep. Um, and then Dred Scott sues for freedom. Maybe we can start talking about that. Yeah. So Dred Scott. So he was, he was, um, uh, an enslaved person who lived a good amount of his later adult life in free states or free territories. I mean, to the point, Jesse, where you just told us that one of his children was born in a free. In a free territory. Mm-hmm. Um, so he lives a lot of his life in free territory. And eventually he's like, wait a sec. Um, if I've lived so long in, in free territory or free states, like, shouldn't I be free myself? And so he brings his court case and it works its way all the way up, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and there's kind of, th- this is like 1856 into 1857. So we've kind of moved along in the 1850s. And there's three big questions that the Supreme Court level is considering when the Dred Scott case gets to them. The first question in this case that that this, the court has to consider and decide on. Is Scott a citizen? As a black man, right. is he a citizen? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's question number one. Question number two is... Has his prolonged residence or time in these free areas, states and territories, made him free? So so he spent two years in each yep. place. Mm-hmm. So has that time in those free areas made him free? And then the third question, which is really an interesting one with this, and that third question that the court had to consider with this case was, did in 1820... When Congress passes the Missouri Compromise, saying no slavery in the Louisiana Purchase land above the 3630 line. Okay, that's what they say in 1820. And this case asks the Supreme Court if Congress had, did they have the right to do that, to ban slavery above that line in the Compromise of 1820? Or sorry, yeah, uh, the Missouri Compromise, which was in 1820. So those are the three questions encapsulated in this case that are before the Supreme Court. Um, As a black man, was Scott a citizen with the right to sue in a federal court? Had prolonged residence in those free areas made him free? And did Congress have the right to ban slavery like they did during the Missouri Compromise from 1820? And I just want to say you could probably do a whole podcast based on this Supreme Court case um, the dredge scott decision so much history and so much uh litigation went on over this so obviously as much of this book will be kate and i's um telling of it will be more simplified and truncated but this is a really consequential case in american history <clears throat> um, yeah. 
And if you're talking about anything African-American related, um, enslaved or um, <clears throat> Civil War related, uh, this is huge, the Dred Scott decision. Yeah, it really is. And when it gets to the Supreme Court and they're considering those three fundamental questions in this case, um, unfortunately, the person who is the chief justice of the Supreme Court at that time was a, ban a man by the name of Roger Taney. Roger Taney is one of my historical nemesis. Um, I'm not a huge Taney fan myself. I don't think he has a nickname, but... He's, a, he's just a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's really like you it's when you read about these some of these guys i'm just like man i i wouldn't have liked it i wouldn't have yeah. liked him and so much of what tawny like what his career as a judge and as a justice on the supreme court was known for or is still considered known for by historians today is his defense of slavery like so he kind of spends his whole career defending this institution of slavery okay so this court comes or this case comes before the highest court in the united states and um chief justice tawny who's very pro-slavery he uh writes the the main opinion so the the opinion comes out and it's a majority mostly southerners but he does manage to get by through some arm twisting with james buchanan remember oh. buchanan kind of owes the south and so Buchanan convinces one of the northern justices to side with Tawny in this majority opinion. Real quick, Tawny actually was a slave owner himself at one point and had no great love for the institution for its own sake, having freed his own slaves, mm -hmm. but was very much in support of the southern life and values, which is something that you're tracking. Yeah. And so I just wanted to I, I wanted to slide that in. Yeah. Interesting layer to the man. That's really weird. I know. Interesting, right? It's really, I mean, it's like you're you're so obsessed with this Southern um, identity. Yeah. You're willing to support something that you yourself have already decided in a personal way is mm -hmm. kind of wrong. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sorry. I just wanted to, but didn't that, mean to interrupt. No, I mean, there's a Tawny quote in here that McPherson uses that talks about how, you know, he, he says... Um, he had a commitment to Southern life and values, which, in these are Tawny's words, which seemed organically linked to the peculiar institution and unpreservable without it. So, in Tawny's opinion, Southern life, Southern values were not preservable without the institution of slavery, which is an interesting wrinkle, especially with the knowledge that he had formerly freed his own slaves. Ta Tawny decides he does not need to rule on all three questions, but he crafts this master plan. And he's like, I am going to deal a blow to these Northern Republicans by ruling on all three questions. And he knows he has the majority. And then, like I was saying, he kind of, he got Buchanan to pressure um, one of the justices from the North because Tawny wanted a Northerner in the majority on this opinion. So it wouldn't just be viewed as purely sectional, as purely regional, right? So Buchanan kind of pressures this Northern justice to give Tawny that one Northerner who agrees with the ruling. And he answers all three of these questions in his ruling. And this is really surprising to a lot of people. Um, 
because, you know, folks weren't necessarily expecting him to rule on all three. And he writes this long opinion in the Dred Scott decision, which if you're interested and you want to learn more, like Jesse said, like we are literally scratching the surface. Like you could do an entire podcast. There have been whole books written about this. So like if you're curious, definitely go and read that Supreme Court decision um, and start looking into it more. But essentially, so let's break down what the opinion was, Jesse. In this opinion, this decision from the Supreme Court, Tawny says that African-Americans are are not not U.S. citizens and therefore cannot bring a suit in federal court. So that that first question and how he ruled on it was just a huge setback because, of course, like in the north and across the United States at that time, there were free blacks. There were people who were born out of slavery, who were born in the United States. And what Tani is saying that even those folks who have never lived a day of their life enslaved but our African-American, he's saying that those folks don't even have the right to be seen as a U.S. citizen and to sue in federal court. So this is like not just big, it's massive. So that's how he answers the first question in this case. The second question, um, which is talking about if you travel to a free territory, does that make you free? And he says no. Traveling an extended time or residence in a free territory or a free state, in fact, does not make you free. Um, and yeah, so he, he kind of addresses that. And then the third question, which is the constitutionality of the Missouri compromise in 1820. Yeah. Established by the, by Congress. Congress. Yes, absolutely. Um, Tawny says that Congress never had the right to prohibit slavery in a territory. North of the parallel, 36 Period. He says Congress never had the right to prohibit slavery in a territory. Okay. Now, in the context of the Missouri Compromise, you're right. It was talking about north of the 3630 line. Um, But what he does is he quotes the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution and how he backs up this argument. And this is where there are these like kind of like legal gymnastics going on that Tawny's really good at. So he's good at finding laws and kind of bending them a little to suit and to support what he wants. Um, He says that the Fifth Amendment protected life, liberty, and property. And so he says that in essence, slave property could not be excluded from a territory because that Fifth Amendment protects property. What the Dred Scott and Tawny's opinion on the Dred Scott decision does is it makes this court's decision super political. Super political. Because Tawny's motivations were political. The reason why he's ruling on all three of these questions is he's trying to quell and push down some of this anti-slavery movement. Trying to weaken the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, And sort of like the Sumner uh, attack, it has the opposite effect. Yeah. Um, It it galvanizes the Republican Mm -hmm. Party um, and makes, makes the... It inspires the Republican Party and people who are abolitionists and yeah. so on and so forth, so forth to keep going. Yeah. To keep pushing for the ban of slavery. And not only does it kind of galvanize the Republicans, it further deepens divisions in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So this decision kind of helps Republicans 
you know, coalesce a little bit more. But then it also says, okay, the Democrats, the the opponents, the Republicans, they're more divided. So it's a little bit of a double whammy. So what happens to Dred Scott? I mean, he he then is returned to enslavement. Yeah. Um, It's a really it's super sad to read about. Um, Yeah. But I just wanted to I didn't want to leave. Yeah, because I think hanging. we'll move on from Dred Scott, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's hard not to. Again, the these stories are super difficult to read about, but important to know about. They are the Dred Scott decision affects not just Dred Scott and his family, but all Black Americans at this time, whether <clears throat> free um, or enslaved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I don't know. I just don't want to. I I want to yeah. kind of acknowledge that. And I think um, if. If any of the folks listening are ever in the St. Louis, Missouri area, um, you know, people think of like St. Louis as like the arch or whatever. There's like that big arch that you can go up in. Mm -hmm. But just across the way from the arch, there's um, a historic courthouse, which is one of the spots where this case was tried before it got to the Supreme Court. And they have some really cool stuff talking about Dred Scott and his family they have um they have a cool statue out front. Is that a national H- historic site? It is part of oh, the okay. National Park Service. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anytime, um, anytime you have like a side side quest where you've been somewhere, you should share those stories. <laughs> I know Kate's Kate's been to a lot of these places. Um, and then when we get to talking about battlefields, you should definitely do that. Yeah. Um, I'll talk about my favorite Spotsylvania courthouse. Yeah, you can read about these stories, but I do think any anytime you have a chance to yeah. stop, and um. Um, maybe go to a museum or a historical site and be a good good way to take these in. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big proponent of place-based learning of history, right? Mm-hmm. I think when you're standing in the spot where a case was heard or where a battle happened or where someone was gave a speech, like there's extra power mm-hmm. in that in that experience. I can't imagine how hopeless that this decision would have felt um to black uh, Americans at the time. And I think I mean some of I can't that, imagine how that would have felt. I know? think Tani wanted that hopelessness mm-hmm. because he was trying to deal a blow to the anti slavery movement, which had a large portion of that anti slavery movement was was freed African Americans or or African Americans who were born free. Um and he I think he was trying to give this hopelessness like just stop fighting you know it's it's hard not to read about this and be kind of cynical about the way our justice system is set up sometimes Mm. um like there's this cooperation going on at the time between tani and buchanan for example yeah and in i in an ideal situation you would hope that the president or other politicians don't they can't affect the Supreme Court should not be affected by politics. relationships and politics. But unfortunately, they often are. <clears throat> and um, at this time, you know, Tani, Tani is being affected by his relationship with people like Buchanan and, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and other um, pro-slavery uh, politicians. But yeah. we should probably pick up and get into. Yeah. So. I think, like, you just kind of wrap up the Dred Scott decision. Tawny wanted it to cripple the Republican Party. He wanted it to cripple the anti-slavery movement. It didn't. It actually ended up hurting the Democratic Party instead. And the Republicans really moved 
again, this idea of like the slave power, right? This was another example that Republican politicians pulled out and said, look, this slave power, they're conspiring. They're, you know, now not only are they trying to take this new territory like in Kansas Mm -hmm. for a slave state, but now the thing that Republicans are starting to say to voters, you know, and whether or not this is true, who knows, but it was an effective tool with northern voters was that the South was not only wanting to expand slavery into free state or into new territory, but now into free states. Right. Because what this Dred Scott decision is saying is, okay, slave owners can bring their slaves up north with no consequence. Right. So Republicans are saying, like, no, this is the slave power working against these protections and these liberties that free states have long held, mm-hmm. held dear. Lincoln, I don't know if this is the right time to introduce this, but Lincoln comes along and he uses the Dred Scott decision, earn votes and to yep. rally people in for the Republican Party. Because and he course. does it. He does a pretty good job of that. And Jesse, what is who is Lincoln Lincoln running against in this in this instance you're talking about? Is it the little giant? The little giant. Stephen yeah. Douglas. So in 1858, um, you know, Lincoln is uh, running for a Senate seat, right? Yeah. Runs for a Senate seat against Stephen Douglas. They're both from Illinois. Um, and in 1858, there's this there's a series of debates between Lincoln and Douglas called, they're super famous, Maybe just among, like, history people. (laughs) They're called the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, And so they happen across the entire state of Illinois. And having lived in Illinois and spent a good deal of time thinking and learning about Lincoln while I was there, um, I've been to a couple of these cool debate sites. So all kinds of neat connections. But, yeah, in 1858, in that election, Lincoln and Douglas are running head-to-head for an Illinois Senate seat. They have these debates that kind of traverse the entire state of Illinois and they gain a lot of press. Oh yeah. The debates are big news. They're both pretty good at debating, I would say. They are. Um um I mean they're both great politicians. Let's be real. Whether you agree with their politics or not, they're orators and like, you know, political minds. First, Lincoln hits Douglas, kind of gives him a lose-lose preposition. Yeah. Um, if, you know, so Lincoln asks during these debates, quote, was there any lawful way Lincoln asked at Freeport that the people of a territory could exclude slavery if they wished to do so? The point of the question, of course, was to nail the contradiction between Dred Scott and popular sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Folklore history has portrayed this question as the stone that slew Goliath. If Douglas answered no, he alienated Illinois vo- voters and jeopardized his re-election to the Senate. If he answered yes, he alienated the South and lost their support for the presidency in 1860. Mm-hmm. So this is something, and that's end quote, this is something that Lincoln is really good at, putting his opponent into a lose-lose situation. Mm-hmm. But Douglas strikes back Well, yeah, and says, well, Lincoln wants... Um, total equality between the white man Mm -hmm. and the black man which for context in 1858 that was a really uncommon or like revolutionary concept for a lot of white americans in 1858 
Um, they they were ready. Many white Americans at this time were ready to say that slavery slavery was wrong, but they were not ready for total equality between whites and blacks. Definitely. Um, so when kind of Douglas kind of punches back and and says, well, you know, Lincoln wants this egalitarian world. Yeah. Um, and then he puts Lincoln on the back foot. I think of it as that. Uh, you know, famous reference like nobody puts baby in a corner mm-hmm. from a you know dirty dancing back or whatever. <laughs> no one puts Douglas in a corner <laughs> because he is a really skilled politician. Like it, he knows how to navigate this situation. And when you hear people be critical of Lincoln today, they'll cite these um, debates and send say, "See, Lincoln was racist," yeah. and by today's standards, he was. Um, but you know his. Uh, his he's kind of learning on the fly how to talk about this issue and how to also be strategic enough to gain votes and i don't know if you want to speak to that kate um about lincoln's strategy at this point if he really had a strategy or if he was kind of learning the let's just clarify the republican platform which lincoln was you know in the republican party it was against the expansion of slavery into new areas, mm-hmm. right? There was, similar to almost all other Republican politicians at the time, there was almost no discussion of a plan. Like, so what happens when slavery ends? Or how do we, you know, so we stop its expansion and then what? Right? So the Republican platform kind of just ended at stop the expansion of slavery. So Lincoln wasn't unique in that. Mm-hmm. Um but, like, at that time, similar to most other Republicans, they're, you know, they were talking about the issue was, you know, the future and the morality of slavery. And there wasn't a whole lot of, like, the how, right? What happens once it ends? But I think the really big takeaway, Jesse, with the Lincoln-Douglas debates is that it was high profile. It was all about slavery. Yeah, that was the thing they talked about. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything else about banking or economics or tariffs or none of that, because this topic, this issue of slavery was just omnipresent. It was Mm -hmm. the thing that was kind of sucking all of the oxygen out of the politics at that time. And and And, oh, sorry. sorry. And you couldn't talk about politics without addressing slavery. They weren't trying to kick the issue to the courts, as many politicians before them had been trying to do, according to McPherson. Yeah. Um, you know, since the Compromise of 1850, uh, politicians would not actively avoid it, but it wasn't like you wanted to get yourself into the right. arena of debating this. Yeah. But Kansas and Dred Scott had, you know, brought this topic, For, forced violently it. forced it forward. Mm-hmm. And so you see Lincoln and, and Douglas here kind of grappling with it. Mm-hmm. Now, what most historians will say is Lincoln, quote unquote, won the debates with Douglas. I don't know really how you deem a winner and a loser in a debate. But unfortunately for, for good old Abe Lincoln, um, he lost the Senate seat. <laughs> so I've always thought this is kind of funny. You know, Lincoln, like, quote unquote, won the debates, but actually lost lost the election. So Douglas gets that Senate seat. Lincoln will stay home in Springfield, Illinois, um, which, again, kind of a shout out to Springfield, Illinois. I lived there for a time. And if you are in Springfield, there's so much cool Lincoln history there. Or if you're passing through, like it is worth a two hour detour 
to go to Springfield. There's a National Historic Site there, so part of the National Park Service called Lincoln Home. And it interprets his life as a lawyer, as a husband, as a father, kind of as an everyday human, which I feel like is not the Lincoln most of us know. Most of us know this Lincoln during the Civil War in the White House who was like anguished as the country was tearing itself apart. And what that park site tries to show and get people to connect to is Lincoln like as a human, you know, in a way that's relatable. So anyway, if you're in the area or near Springfield, definitely recommend going and checking it out. And um, yeah, so Lincoln stays home. But the other thing the debates do besides getting Douglas the Senate seat is it propels Lincoln onto this national stage. So the debates and his speech and his eloquence and his kind of political, you know, maneuvering in this really push him as a Republican frontrunner. And, of course, in 1860, right, this is 1858, but Mm -hmm. 1860 is another presidential election. And prior to those debates and during them, um, there's a depression going on that's that's affecting the North pretty dramatically. Not the South quite as much because their economy is not Mm -hmm. as dynamic and it doesn't rely on credit as much. Yeah. Um, But the depression of 1857 and 1858 is is. um, I don't know what's the right term raging, I guess. I don't know. It's it's a it's I, like any other depression. It's it's a massive part of the daily news. And and um, I don't know. Yeah. And Jesse, you know, I like your use of the word depression. I think that kind of resonates for us as modern people. Actually, in the time they were calling it the panic of 1857. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're like looking up depression of 1857, you know, all you listeners who are going to be Googling all these interesting topics afterwards. Um, they were referring to it in the time period as the panic of 1857. So it was this like financial panic, essentially a depression. And I like how the use of that word kind of connects us to more modern economic crises than maybe that we're more familiar with. But the panic of 1857 had its roots in the Crimean War and in the overextension of the American economy because of that. And like Jesse said, it really hit the North harder than it hit the South. Um, in the North, you know, there's this revitalization of religious fervor because of the panic. Um, so there's this economic hardship. And what often happens when there's economic hardship and uncertainty and a lot of, you know, bad stuff going around? Political change? Well, yes, but also kind of a renewed religious fervor, right? Oh, yeah. I feel like people often in those times look for something to believe in Mm -hmm. or like some kind of a faith or support. Mm -hmm. So we see that happening in the North. Uh, The the depression doesn't last. It turns out to be not as bad as people thought or expected. Um, One of the reasons we have California gold at that time coming back East, they're supporting the banks. Yeah. Because of course, like behind all of this way out in the West, you know, it's the the gold rush in California, and then that gold is being shipped, shipped back. Yeah, some of the the job uncertainty, the the economy uncertainty at the time, I thought Lincoln used to his advantage, actually. And so, uh, a lot of the pro Southerners at this time were saying, "See, the Southern economy yeah. isn't affected by depression," blah blah blah. But Lincoln would come back at that and say, "Well, actually, when when 
people lose their jobs or they begin to strike, mm -hmm. um, that can be a really good thing for competition. And yeah. he starts talking about competition, and I thought that was really smart. For... And, it, and it gets at this bigger idea of, like, free labor versus slave labor. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I think, like, this panic of 1857 and how the North and South differ in how they experience it mm -hmm. really, um, you know, the South did, they fared better. They they were not hit as hard in the Panic of 1857. But, but then, they also didn't grow or evolve. True. But what the South did, what Southern states did, was they used that fact of, like, well, we weren't hit as hard. They actually used that fact to justify the, what they viewed as the moral right of slavery, right? That this was something that was good. Um, and they compared it to this idea of the, quote, wage slaves mm -hmm. in the North. Right. So Southerners were saying, you know, that su the Southern civilization was superior. There's a really interesting analogy of the Southern slave system to uh, a form of socialism that McPherson pulls out that I think is really interesting. Like, And this is all in reaction to these differing experiences of the Panic of 1857. Um, so let's see. Mc McPherson also made a really good point that I'd never really thought about that slavery um, not only is it an economic system but it it it's it's a caste system mm -hmm. where whites always have the upper hand and because of that um, there's a lack of like class conflict I guess yeah um, but I'd never really heard it written that way or put that way yeah um, but Lincoln I thought I don't know how how often you know I know uh, Horace Greeley had mentioned it about like competition yeah. and the idea that all human beings want to try to better themselves and strive. Yeah. But Lincoln does a good job of saying competition, um, adversity is actually kind of a natural part of of the economy. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's something that we should be encouraging. We should be encouraging workers striking. A man should be able or a person should be able to quit their job and try to better themselves. And it kind of by doing that, it makes all areas of life. It makes every aspect of the economy try to do better, yeah. try to improve their right. model. And I I thought that was, um, I don't know, I thought that was a good argument to make. It definitely is. And I want to kind of pull on a thread that you just mentioned, Jesse, which is this idea of like, white Southerners and this caste system. So one of the things that the institution of slavery did, and, and McPherson talks about it a little towards the tail end of this chapter six, is the idea of, um, you know, white Southerners who did not own slaves being invested in slavery, right? In this institution, they had no financial investment, right? But the idea of you know, even the poorest white Southerner still wasn't the lowest person in the food chain. Yeah. Right. On on that ladder, the lowest rung of the ladder. And the institution of slavery provided, <clears throat> even for someone with no financial or economic investment in the institution, it provided that social investment. Mm -hmm. And this idea of like, um, you know, essentially supremacy. Which is where we get the birth of, you know, white supremacy and a lot of the racism that is 
we're still dealing with in the country today is because of that narrative of kind of racial difference and white supremacy that really comes from the institution and how the wealthy white Southerners were trying to get the poor white Southerners to support this institution as well. Right. Um, I have, let's see, on my notes, I wrote down the economy rebounds in the North by 1859. Yep. Um, three land grant measures of the 1850s yep. are introduced into Congress. Um, the Homestead Act, which um, uh, Buchanan vetoes. Yep. Um, the Pacific Railroad Act is blocked. Yep. Uh, and then grants to uh, stakes for the establishment of agricultural and mechanical colleges mm-hmm. are also blocked. In states. Yeah, yeah. In states. And those, yeah. all three of those would ostensibly would, would support the um, Northern Republicans or they would be beneficial to Northern Republicans. And the idea that Northern Republicans were held dear of free labor system. Yes. Right. Because that's education. Education. Right. Or education kind of for the masses. That's enabling people to get their own land and make their own money and have that investment. The Pacific Railroad, Mm -hmm. which would also benefit the northern economy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the Homestead Act. uh, By this time, we had talked about Southerners wanting to expand slavery to the south. Mm -hmm. Um, But because we we can't because of the the 36th parallel. they did not want to have more homesteading going on out west because that would add to um, populations that could that would be voting against slavery. Yeah. So it would add American populations to territories mm-hmm. that would then potentially want to petition for entrance to the Union as free states. Mm-hmm. And southern slaveholding states did not want that. <laughs> um, they did not want to be, you know, outnumbered by 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 free states right um so again like the panic of 1857 and these three land grant acts through congress they're really hitting home this idea of like free labor slave labor and this tension between those systems that is very sectional that is very regional in the u.s and that's coming to a head and it's also giving you know, it's giving Lincoln more ammo to win the election. I want to read something from on page 124 from McPherson, quote, the Southern checkmate of tariff. I didn't mention that one. Homestead, Pacific Railroad and land grant college acts provided the Republicans with vote winning issues for 1860. Mm-hmm. So like I like we mentioned with the Dred Scott decision, sometimes these um, these um small victories yeah can end up being a larger loss in in yeah. in future debates absolutely and this you know this kind of brings us towards the close of chapter 6 with but but we enter you know we we kind of end this time period um and McPherson spends some time talking about the dysfunction in congress oh yeah right um kind of reminds me of today but again it rem- it re- reading but, it i was like wow <laughs> brought back is... bad memories well no it's just so like you have you have um southern democrats saying uh we'd rather the wheels fall off this government than to yep. offend our 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 principles and honor yeah so you again know? that's another area where i'd kind of flagged that idea of like uniquely southern honor and like the 
at that time, Southerners were willing to defend that honor pretty much at any cost, including that quote, what Jesse was just saying, is in the context of they were trying to elect a Speaker of the House. And they couldn't, and they couldn't, and I think it went through like 40 votes or something before they finally were able to. And that's where they say, you know, we'd rather have the wheels of government fall off than, you know, dishonor ourselves as Southerners. Which, again, yeah, like some sad parallels to recent events. But at the same time, like maybe putting recent events into a better context of like, yeah, this has happened before. We're not in a unique moment. And like, honestly, maybe our moment is not as bad as previous moments have been. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, This would be a good chapter for, you know, high schoolers who are curious about how Congress works to read, mm-hmm. um, because you know you think you uh, if a if an act gets to like the Homestead Act, it made it to the president's desk, but he didn't sign he it. He vetoed it. You know, yeah. um, there's just kind of it covers like because it was such a tense battle. Yeah, um, we kind of you we they were using all all means necessary to get something passed or yeah. to block something. Yeah. You kind of learn about how our government works with this chapter. I feel like it's politicking at its best and at its worst. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, But, you know, ultimately, like where we end this chapter, it's 1859, like late, late, late 1859. Obviously, 1860 is a presidential election year, and we're about to get into that. But where we end this chapter, where McPherson ends it, is with a cliffhanger. And he kind of dangles like a little teaser in front of us of like, but you remember this fella? His name was John John Brown. Brown. And hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen, because John Brown's about to take us to a place where maybe most politicians weren't ready for the United States to go. Right. Um, Question for you, though. uh Have you been to Harper's Ferry? I have. A couple times, once, twice. I mean, multiple times. Have you really? Yeah. So I've been, I've been down to the lower area, like right by the rivers. Um, I've been to the armory building. I've been mm-hmm. to the railroad tracks. I've been to like in the old town section. There's some really beautiful buildings and stonework down in the old town section. But then I've also been up to later on in the Civil War. Um, there was a battle at Harper's Ferry where Jacks Stonewall Jackson does some really impressive generalship mm-hmm. um and there's some interesting stuff going on there what so. what do the rangers at harper's ferry i mean what kind of tone do they strike with their talks i mean are there are there a lot of interpretive talks at harper's ferry or i mean i imagine it would be a difficult um yeah so what jesse's referencing is harper's ferry is also part of the national park service so i think they're a national historical park and the rangers there is, I think it's pretty interesting. So I've never actually been to a ranger program mm-hmm. at Harper's Ferry. But what I do know is that park talks about much more than just John Brown. Mm-hmm. Because they talk about, like, there's a whole thing with Thomas Jefferson at Harper's Ferry. Because it was in Virginia? Uh, yeah, I don't. I, or... I, I We should look it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's like a Thomas Jefferson connection and then there's the John Brown thing. But then there's like all of these old buildings and like the old town. So they also talk about like what was life like? Like how did daily life occur? And then there's the Civil War battle. Right. So they just cover such a broad spectrum that um, I'm sure they advise their staff 
to tread carefully when it comes to John Brown, because John Brown can be a really polarizing historic figure. Um, but we will get into much more about John Brown um, on the next the next yeah. episode. So our our next episode, episode four, we'll cover chapter chapters seven and eight. So chapter seven is called the Revolution of eighteen sixty. And chapter eight is the counter revolution of 1861. And that will be our next episode. Um, Anything you want to end on? Yeah, I do want to end just by saying that, like, I feel like. So, again, one of the strengths of Battle Cry of Freedom, this book by McPherson, is that it's very comprehensive. It's the whole Civil War era. It's the pre the Civil War, and then the post as well. And I feel like we've been talking a lot about the lead-up and the pre-Civil War, and we're like, oh my god, Kansas is so confusing, and uh, all this back and forth. But we're on the precipice. We're about to get into that moment when the country crumbles and then, you know, the Civil War starts in earnest. And so I think we're, like, about to turn that corner Mm -hmm. um and we're almost through this lead up of like let's set the stage why is this all happening yeah well anything you want to add jesse do you want to is it era or era (laughs) (laughs) is it tomato or tomato no i i think that it's funny because it seems like we've been talking a lot about the lead up and in my mind i'm like man we just still haven't covered enough of it because it's so there's so much to it and um I always feel like there's so much more to be said. Well, you know and what I mean? also, I think there's so much to be learned from the lead up. Oh yeah, like there's more, a lot more to... so than the more so than the battles. There's a lot to be learned from the battles and the Civil War as well. But the lead up is like, how in the, the world part. did we get there? Exactly. And what yeah. lessons can we take from that? You know, and employ in terms of you know, life or politics or whatever. Being a better country in the future. Absolutely. And I would, you know, this is kind of a selfish thing, but I would like to not be in another civil war in my lifetime, you know? Uh, Personally, I would like to, I feel like we could try to work it out instead of coming to broadswords and, you know, things like guns. And I I I I would like to just learn more about our history so that we can prevent um, another civil war. And I think just to take us out, last word on this, and then we'll see you guys all in two weeks where we'll cover chapters seven and eight of McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. But just the last words to kind of take us out is we are spending a good amount of time talking about the lead up to the war and we're on that precipice. So just hang in there with us and then we're going to get into some of that battles and action and presidential movement coming up um and thanks so much for joining us today all right thanks see you next week